When I see a before and after photo, I think about, well, let me just say this. I, I have a friend that, you know that show, The Biggest Loser? Uh, my, my, I have a friend that was on that show for a while, and, and it was amazing to see him at the finale and to see how he had been transformed by his change of lifestyle. And, but what is really amazing is when you look at the before and after photos, when you look at how much he had changed, he looked like a completely different person. In fact, I thought if I walked past him in the store, I've known him for years, but if I had walked past him in the store as he looked at the finale, I probably wouldn't recognize him. But you know, the, the thing about before and after photos that always amazes me, whether that's on television or somebody posted on Facebook or something like that, what amazes me is that they had the foresight to take the before picture. You know what I'm saying? Because they knew my life is about to change. I, I am putting a stake in the ground, and from this point forward, I'm going to be a different person. I'm never going to look... Again, like I look right now, in a few months, I'm going to be so transformed that I'm going to look back at this picture and there's going to be a noticeable difference between the way I am then and the way I am now. That makes me think that, that we need to have that kind of spiritual foresight, don't we? To say, I need to make some changes in my life. I need to recognize that some things need to change. And I need to take a spiritual before photo, right? I need to take a spiritual before photo. In fact, I almost thought about doing something so silly as taking a taking my phone up here and taking a picture of all of us to say, this is our before photo. The problem is that in three months, you wouldn't be able to tell the difference physically because you can't see the, the spiritual transformation that's happened on the inside. But I want to encourage you. Take a spiritual selfie real quick, right? Take a spiritual before photo and say, from this moment on, I'm going to make some changes in my life. I'm going to experience some transformation. So as a congregation, over the next three months, we're going to do kind of a spiritual boot camp over the next three months. It won't, it won't really be that hard. But hopefully we can make some changes individually, as families, as life groups, and as a congregation in our sermon time, that we can say, if we make these small incremental changes, we can experience a transformation of our life. I like this quote that said, small daily improvements are the key to staggering long-term results. Small daily improvements are the key to staggering long-term Results. So over the next three months, we're going to look at some small daily changes that you can make in your life that will have staggering long-term results. We're going to look at, in this month, Bible study. What changes can we make in our Bible study that we can transform the way we read Scripture so that our spiritual lives are transformed? And then next month, we're going to look at prayer. And we're going to say, what changes can we make in our prayer life? How can we transform our prayer life so that our lives are transformed? And then the month after that, we're going to consider service. How can I transform the way that I serve and therefore my life be transformed? So we're going to look at some things this month in God's Word, very practical, very useful things that we can say, I'm going to change, I'm going to transform the way I study the Bible 
Because I know that the Bible, that Scripture, is the sword of the Spirit, right? John asked in his prayer that we be transformed by the Spirit, right? And we need to be transformed. We need to recognize in our life that there are some things that need to change. And the sword of the Spirit, the tool of the Spirit is Scripture, is the Word of God. And it can change our lives if we have the courage to study it in the right way, right? There's a lot of people that know a lot of Bible, but it hasn't changed the way that they live their lives. And all of us can recognize that sometimes we hear a Bible class or a sermon or we open up God's Word and we say, I've read that a thousand times. How did I never get it before? How did I never let it change me before? I heard a lot of comments like that after last month's series on love. We've talked about love for years, haven't we? We've read what the Bible has to say about loving our neighbor. And for many of us, it just never sank in before. And we never made the changes that we need to make. And so this month, we're going to look at how can I transform the way I study the Bible so that my life is transformed. So take your spiritual selfie right now in your head, right? Take your spiritual selfie and say, this is my before photo. And I'm never going to be this person again. I'm going to make some changes. Even if you're a great person and you're wonderful and you think your Bible study is pretty good, it can be even better, can't it? We all need transformational growth. And part of that transformational growth is going to come by transforming the way that we read God's holy word. So I want to start off by talking about our attitude. We're going to look at more practical things the next few weeks, but this week I think that we have to recognize that how we study the Bible and studying the Bible the right way in a way that's going to transform our lives has to begin with our attitude. We're going to look at a passage in Acts chapter 17 that probably a lot of us are familiar with. If you're not real familiar with the book of Acts, let me kind of just set it up just a little bit. Acts is written by a first century Christian doctor. Okay? It's written by a first century Christian doctor who was explaining how the Word of God, how the message of Jesus and what Jesus had done on the cross, the story of His kingdom that He has established and the forgiveness of sins that He offers through His blood, how that message, by the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of the apostles, spread throughout the known world. Specifically, it spread from Jerusalem all the way to the capital of the empire, to Rome. And so this doctor, Dr. Luke, was explaining how that came to be and how the gospel spread all the way from Jerusalem to Rome. One of the leading characters in the in this letter or in this uh, book of Acts is the Apostle Paul. And after Paul had changed from being a persecutor of Christians, that's an amazing story in and of itself, after he had gone from persecuting Christians to being not only a Christian but an apostle, which means an ambassador of Jesus, somebody that Jesus sends out to take his message to the world, Paul goes and he spreads the gospel to the world, to both Jews and Gentiles. And so in Acts 17, he ends up in a city uh, called Thessalonica, and he goes to a synagogue. Now, the synagogue, if you're not familiar, is a lot like the Jews' church building, right? And it would be where they came to pray and to worship and especially to study Scripture. And so Paul, being a Jew, being Jewish, now a follower of Jesus, the Jewish Messiah, was coming to his brothers and sisters, his Jewish brothers and sisters, to explain to them how Jesus is 
the Messiah. So let's start in Acts chapter 17 and verse 2. Acts 17 and verse 2. So Paul goes into the synagogue in Thessalonica, as was his custom. And on three Sabbath days, Sabbath is Saturday, right? The seventh day, the last day. So three Sabbath days, which means he was there for three weeks, right? So on three Sabbath days, he reasoned with them from the scriptures. So he took the Old Testament scriptures and he reasoned with them. He made good arguments about what he was talking about, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ, that's the Messiah, the anointed one of God, the anointed king, to suffer and to rise from the dead and saying, this Jesus, whom I proclaim to you, is the Christ. He is the Messiah. So just kind of picture that in your head. So here Paul shows up in this city, Thessalonica, and he is in the Jewish synagogue for three weeks using the scriptures, using their scriptures that they're very familiar with and they know forward and backward and that they read all the time and quoted all the time. They were very familiar with. He used those scriptures to reason with them and to show them, hey, you know this Jesus guy that I'm talking about? He's the Messiah. He's the one that our people have been waiting for for hundreds, if not thousands of years. He's the one. And do you see how the, the scriptures say that he would suffer and that he would die and that he would rise? Do you, you see that picture that we get from these scriptures? Well, I'm telling you, it happened. Jesus is the one. He's the one we've been waiting for. He is the fulfillment of all of these prophecies. He's the fulfillment of all of these scriptures. He's our Passover lamb. He's our new Moses. He's our new David. He is the fulfillment of all of these things. And you must put your trust and faith in him and give him your loyalty and your allegiance because he is the king of the whole world. And he's bringing together both Jews and Gentiles into the family of God, into the kingdom of God, and he has a home for them for eternity. And he was explaining this message to them through the scriptures. Okay, now look at verse 4. And some, there's a key word right there, and some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks. Uh, some translations may say God-fearing Greeks. In other words, those were Gentiles that understood and believed that Yahweh was the true God and that they worshipped and feared the God of heaven, the God of the Jews. They weren't proselytes. They hadn't become Jews, but they feared God. They were devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But again, Luke emphasizes the beginning of verse 4, some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas. So of the Jewish people that he worked with, specifically the men, he seems to be implying, but of this group of people that he'd been working with for three weeks or more, and over and over and over and over and over again, explaining to them from the Scriptures, the Scriptures that they loved, the Scriptures that they adored, the Scriptures that they knew, the Scriptures that they quoted. And Paul said, listen, don't you see that it's Jesus don't you see that it's all about Jesus? Don't you see that all of this points to Jesus? Don't you see that he's the Messiah? Don't you see that he's the Savior? And he reasoned with them week after week after week. And some of them were persuaded, but that also implies that some of them were not persuaded, right? 
some of them were not persuaded. Why? Did they not see what it said? Were they reading a different set of scriptures? Were they just not as smart? No. No, these were smart, intelligent people who knew the scriptures, who claimed to love the scriptures. These were reasonable people, and Paul was reasoning with them. And some people looked at the same scriptures and heard the same arguments, the same reasoning, and some were persuaded, and some said, I don't want anything to do with that. I think you're a liar. I don't want anything to do with you. I will not accept that. I will not believe that. I will not swallow that. I don't want to have anything to do with that. In fact, look at the verse 5. But the Jews, and specifically here, he doesn't mean all the Jews, but he means, I think, the, the leading Jews, the people that were the religious leaders, and again, knew the Scriptures, heard the arguments about Jesus, read everything that Paul was saying to read. These Jews were jealous. They were jealous that some people were following Paul and Silas and joining this band of Jesus followers. The Jews were jealous and taking some wicked men of the rabble, so they stirred up some of the wicked men in town. They said, hey, there's a no good. That guy will join a mob any day. We'll get that guy and that guy. That guy will join a mob. And they stirred up these wicked men of the rabble. They formed a mob. They set the city in an uproar and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. Eventually, Paul and Silas get run out of town. They've got to sneak out of town at night. These people that started this uproar, this mob rising, this revolt against this Christian teaching, they heard the arguments about Jesus. They read the scriptures. They were familiar with the scriptures. They knew the scriptures. They loved the scriptures. They quoted the scriptures. They knew Moses. They knew Jeremiah. They knew Isaiah. They knew all of the scriptures. But yet, when the message was preached to them, they not only said, we don't want to have anything to do with this, they ended up stirring up a mob and running Paul and Silas out of town. So they, they sneak out of town at night, and they go south to the town of Berea. And in Berea, they do the exact same thing that they did in Thessalonica. They go to the Jewish church building, to the synagogue, and they begin to reason with the people in Berea. Same message, same reasoning, same scriptures. Verse 11 of Acts chapter 17. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. That's interesting, isn't it? Luke says these Jews at the synagogue in Berea are more noble than the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica. Why? Well, he's going to tell us. They received the word, the word, the logos, the message about Jesus, right? They received the message about Jesus with all eagerness. They had eagerness. They said, okay, well, tell us. Tell, tell us about this Jesus. Tell us why he's the Christ. Explain to us how he's the Messiah. Explain to us how he died and was buried and rose from the dead. Explain to us how he's bringing together Jews and Gentiles into one family, into one kingdom. Explain to us how that works exactly. And they received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. Many of them, you see the contrast between what is said in verse 4, some of them were persuaded. Verse 12, many of them therefore believed, with not a few Greek women of high standing as well as men. Now, what made the Jews in Berea more noble than the Jews in Thessalonica? Was it that they read the Scriptures? 
No. Both groups read the Scriptures, right? Paul had reasoned with the people in Thessalonica for three weeks with the Scriptures. They heard the Scriptures. They knew the Scriptures. They had quoted those same Scriptures their entire life. It wasn't that they read the Scriptures. Was it that they heard the reasoning? No. Both groups heard the reasoning. The reason why the Jews in Berea were more noble is because they had the courage to accept the biblical truth. They had the humility to receive the message about Jesus with obedience. And to say, is this true? Could this be true? And to examine the scriptures to see if these things were true. Now, just think for a second. How difficult it would be to accept this message. We, we have a tendency as Christians living in the 21st century to think, man, it must have been awesome to get this message, right? To be a Jew living in Berea or Thessalonica and to be going to the synagogue every Saturday and Paul shows up in town and says, hey, guess what? Everything's different now. The one we've been waiting for has come. He's fulfilled everything. And now... And now, oh, it's going to be so much more wonderful, so much more beautiful. Now, Jews and Gentiles are going to come together into one family. And we think, well, they must have just jumped at that, right? No. Some didn't. And even those that did, it was a huge life change, wasn't it? Because now, instead of relating to God through the law, as they had done their entire life, relating to God through the law and believing we are God's people because we're circumcised and we keep the law, now all of a sudden that's changed. And now they relate to God through Jesus and say, now we know that we are God's people because we love and follow Jesus, because the Holy Spirit is our seal that we belong to Him. Things changed, right? And now, instead of looking at a Gentile and saying, I don't want anything to do with those Gentiles, those nasty Gentiles. I don't want them coming over to my house. I don't want to talk to them. I don't want to eat with them. I don't want to have anything to do with them. Now, those Gentiles, still uncircumcised, still not keeping the customs of the Jews, now are part of the same family. And now we're going to share a dinner table. And now they're your brothers and your sisters in Christ. Now they have just as much claim to the promises of God, the promises of Abraham, as you've ever had. Through Jesus. That's a lot to swallow, isn't it? But these Jews in Berea were so noble. They were so courageous. They were so humble that they were willing to accept the biblical truth even though it required a change of life. Right? They were willing to accept the biblical truth even though it cost them a change of life. So I think, how can we be like the Bereans rather than the Thessalonians? Because that's what Luke wants us to see, right? That contrast between the two. It isn't just about reading Scripture. Both groups read Scripture, right? My whole life I've heard Acts 17.11 quoted to say, hey, you should read Scripture. Yeah, absolutely you should. But that wasn't the only problem. The Jews in Thessalonica read Scripture. They heard Scripture. They knew Scripture. They quoted Scripture. See, if we want to be like the Jews in Berea, who were willing to accept the truth, we can't just read Scripture to win arguments. That's what the people in Thessalonica had a tendency to do, isn't it? Read Scripture to win arguments. You ever had a tendency to do that? 
Where we, 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 we say, oh, I know that verse is in here somewhere and I'll find it. I'm going to win that argument. You know, you flip through the page. There it is. I'm going to pull that one out. I don't care what the context is. I'm going to throw it at you and read scripture just to win arguments. We can't be like the Bereans if we just read scripture to make us feel good. Right? Because sometimes the truth doesn't make us feel good. Listen, if we're going to read Scripture to transform our lives, we've got to get it straight in our head that in order, in order to have transformation of our life, we have to have the courage and the humility to accept the biblical truth even if it costs us a change of life. Even if we've got to change the way that we think, even if we have to change the way that we feel, even if we have to change the way that we act, we have to have the humility to say, I might be wrong. <laughs> That's hard, isn't it? To say, I'm, I might be wrong. What if what I believed isn't true? What if what I thought isn't true? What if the way that I'm acting isn't the right way to act? These people in Berea were willing to accept that possibility because they received the word with eagerness and they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul was saying was really so. They didn't just read scripture just to make them feel good about what they were already doing. They didn't just read scripture to reinforce their beliefs and their actions. We have a tendency to do that, right? To read scripture just to reinforce what we're already doing and say, I know I'm right. I'm going to pull out the verses to show you that I'm right. (laughs) You might be right, but then again, you might be wrong. Do we have the humility to read scripture the way the Bereans read scripture? To accept biblical truth even if it costs us a change in our life. We have to accept the, uh, the possibility that we might need to change something. We want to know the truth, even if it costs us our way of life. So that's the takeaway that I want us to walk away with today. Have the humility to accept biblical truth no matter the cost. Let's kind of think about that for just a second. Because I want to, I want to walk away with some real tangible takeaways. I, I don't want to have a hobby horse. You know, preachers that have hobby horses, right? They're always talking about this thing, that that's their thing to talk about. But over the last few weeks, I've really been thinking a lot about race relations in our country. And I've really been thinking a lot about the history of race relations in our country. All the way back to before the Civil War, through the Civil War, and and the time between then and now. And I've read far too many Christian people claiming to represent God. Throwing out, well, God this and God that. Saying they're scripture readers. They're Jesus followers. But they didn't love their neighbor. Did they not read what Jesus said? Did they not read that the most important commandment is to love the Lord your God with your heart and your soul and your mind and your strength? And the second, which is like it, is to love your neighbor as yourself. They read it. They knew it. They could quote it. But then they would go out and live in a way that they despised and hated their neighbor. They didn't have the humility to accept the truth that the way that they were living and the things that they were doing and the words that were coming out of their mouth and the system that they were perpetuating was wrong and sinful. And and although, thankfully, our 
our country's changed a lot since then, thankfully. But that same pride, that same stubbornness that we have in our hearts that allows us to look at Scripture and read right over the things that apply to us and how we should change our life, that same pride and that same stubbornness is alive in my heart. Isn't it? I told you the story before about my friend who was with his youth minister and they were reading through the Bible. They came to 1 Peter 3.21. Baptism now saves you. Not as a removal of dirt from the flesh, but as an appeal to God for a clean conscience. It saves you by the power of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Baptism now saves you. And he said, well, that can't be true because that's not what we teach. (laughs) You see a problem with that? That can't be true because that's not what I believe. That can't be true because that's not what my mom and dad said. That can't be true because that's not what my preacher said. Wait a second. Do you realize what we're dealing with here? We're dealing with God's Word. So if we're going to be Christians, we need to have the humility and the courage to accept biblical truth, even if it costs us a change in our life, even if it costs us pride, even if we have to admit, I was wrong and I I need to make a change. No matter the cost, we have to be willing to accept biblical truth. I've talked to far too many Christians who are living in sexual relationships that are immoral. And I'll show them what God's Word says about it. And yet they persist in it. We have to be willing. We have to have the humility to accept biblical truth no matter the cost. We have to be willing to accept biblical truth even if it costs us a relationship, even if it costs us a job, even if it costs us money, even if it costs us pride and ego. We have to be willing, before we even open up the Bible, we have to have the humility, the determination to have the humility that I will accept God's will no matter the cost. Even if people don't understand it, even if people don't like it, even if I lose relationships, even if I lose money, even if I lose my job, I will accept biblical truth no matter the cost. Let's pray for a minute. Lord, we pray for this kind of humility that when we open up your word, that we are determined that we will accept biblical truth no matter the cost. Help us, Father, this week as we study the Bible to study it with that kind of humility, an eagerness to receive your word, a willingness to search the scriptures to see if it's so. And if it is, Father, let us accept it. Let us receive the implanted word which is able to save our souls. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You see, it's not a perfect understanding that saves us. It's not because we understand the word perfectly and know the word perfectly and can quote the word perfectly that saves us. It is the fact that we receive the implanted word with meekness, James says. That it draws us to Jesus and so that we put our trust and our faith in him. And we say, I will walk with Jesus no matter the cost. I will be a follower of Jesus no matter what the world says, no matter what the world does, no matter what my family says or doesn't say or does or doesn't do. I will be a follower of Jesus. I will accept biblical truth no matter the cost. That's faith. That's courage. 
And when we put our faith in Jesus, we are saved by grace. That's what baptism is all about. It's about committing yourself to Jesus and saying, I will follow Jesus. I will be buried with him and clothed with him and I will follow him no matter the cost. If you're ready to make that commitment and you haven't or you just need prayers or encouragement, we're here for you. Won't you come forward as we stand and sing?